Join us today as we think about approval and angels. Welcome. It's time for another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard each day. To not be satisfied with just throwing a little religion into life as a shallow substitute for giving God our best. As our series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. We begin a series today called A Legacy of Love. Our topics will include trusting God for your children, what makes a marriage, the family comes first, living up to expectations, the father's role in the family. Today it's the need for approval and angels watching over me. Our guests are Bob Lapine, longtime radio host, who will talk about a special night with Elizabeth and Lars Gren, and about a marriage proposal. Also, Rachel Johnson, the creative media director for the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, who oversees the team doing social media as well as working with devotionals and newsletters. Rachel will talk about uh, the effect of Elizabeth Elliot, whether it's just about uh, people of a certain age or a wide range of ages, that coming later. First, though, it's The Need for Approval, A Legacy of Love, Part 1. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot. Delighted to introduce today, not only my daughter Valerie, whom many of you have heard on my program, but in response to some listeners' requests, we have her husband here. Welcome, Walt. Thank you. Good to be here. And welcome, Val. Thank you. I don't know how you both arranged to get away from your family of how many children? Eight. <laughs> Eight children for this afternoon, but we do thank you for coming. And Walt... Our listeners would like to know a little bit about your story. Well, uh, it's no secret to you two. You know it real well. But I would say that I started uh, as a young boy on the mission field. My parents were missionaries in Africa. And spending there about 14 years of my life, I came back to the States when I was 15. At that time, I hadn't even, the, the thought had never crossed my mind that uh, the church and the reality of Christ was ever a question, but uh, I began to see uh, some real inconsistencies and contradictions with the church in the United States, the church that supported my parents on the mission field. And so I guess mentally I left the church and left my understanding of, uh, uh, of Christian family, which uh, had always lived and breathed the scriptures and, and God and took off on a long circuitous route to my own uh, frustration really. It's very much like the story of uh, the man pursued by the hounds of heaven. I remember at one particular point in my life I was at that time running a nightclub. I had uh, lived quite a an eventful and checkered career at this point but I thought I was doing pretty well at this nightclub venture and I looked up and because I felt these eyes on me this particular night I was a bartender at that point giving my bartender a, a break 
And I felt these eyes, and I was most uncomfortable. I looked up, and I engaged my father. My father was looking at me. And I was very embarrassed and very ashamed. I had written home at that point that I was running or working in an entertainment club. I wouldn't dare use the word nightclub with my mom or my father. And uh, to told them that they weren't to worry about me. But there he was, standing in front of me, my father. And I was just as uh, occupied as a bartender could be at that point. Well, my father said to me, let's uh, go outside and talk. And so I immediately got the bartender back on his job. And we went out to the parking lot. And there in the dim light there, hiding my dark bags under my eyes because I wasn't getting much sleep, uh, I tried to assure my father that I was doing real well, that How everything was fine. How old were you about this time? This is about 27, 28 years old. This is one of uh, several times when I'm in the middle of my long end run away from God, and uh, there's my father very visibly, very forcefully uh, showing himself and his concern for me. And Dad didn't preach that night. He just looked at me, and he just said, Son, your mom and I are pretty worried about you. That's all he said. And of course, that didn't uh, say the worlds that it contained about his love for me and his continued prayer for me. But there were other times, too, when Dad would suddenly appear and I would be reminded vividly of the love of the folks back home. Well, honey, what happened during high school when you saw the inconsistencies in kids that were going to church and yet didn't live the life that you had been taught to live following Christ, and you wanted to be like the crowd. What happened there? Well, of course, this is something that goes on all the time, doesn't it? Uh, I was making too big a deal of it. I was making too much of it. I was looking, perhaps, for an excuse there. I was very critical, hypercritical, of the inconsistencies that I saw. And these things are normal, where... Some kids who are raised in the church are not at all walking with the Lord. They, they go their merry way. But the thing that always was going on in the back of my head was I had real Christian upbringing. I had real parents that really loved me. And this kept on a constant theme, even in the midst of some of my worst uh, debauches, I, I remembered the love of my parents. I remembered the Christian family that I came from, and I realized I had a grandmother who would catch me on the way out to an evening partying or the way out on a date, and she would say, Walter, don't forget. Don't dishonor your name and don't dishonor your Lord. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, grandmother, and go on my merry way. But I think the thing that really clinched it for me was the special relationship my parents enjoyed. My father was very expressive of his love for mom. And I remember back in those days in high school, I wanted to be accepted so much that to match the students and the peers and their stories of horrible things at home, I would uh, make up mine too. And I would say something like, well, I can't get the car. They're being terribly unfair tonight, which they weren't. Uh, and then I would make up a story to match theirs about how my mom and dad just always fought. Well, one day by accident, one of these guys from the basketball team followed me home. 
And uh, it was about the time Dad came home from work, his usual time from work. He'd come walking up the uh, street in which we lived because somebody had dropped him off at the corner, and he would go straight through the front door, straight back into the kitchen where Mom was preparing supper, and he'd start hugging her. And uh, that was just a normal rite, uh, a little ceremony that they always did. Or sometimes he would succeed in pulling her out of the kitchen to the living room and get her to sit on his lap. Well, this great big strapping guy from my basketball team was in utter shock. He was in awe. And the next day, to my great dismay, he had spread the word around to the guys that there was something different about the shepherd house. And so sure enough, I noticed these guys would follow me home from practice and they wouldn't leave. They'd all be waiting on the steps for when my father would come home. They were so starved to see the real thing happen between a mom and a dad. Well, this makes for uh, some really uncomfortable times as I think back on some of my worst moments and thinking this that I came from was the real thing. I want that for my life. And that's probably what uh, saved me from making some terrible, terrible mistakes down the road in terms of a choice for a life partner. This kind of uh, wonderful message, and yet it would spring up at the wrong time. It's like scripture. Right in some of my uh, toughest times, I'd remember a passage of scripture, like the old proverb, the way of the transgressor is hard. And I'd sit there and say, boy, am I proving this one in this particular situation. So you knew what you were doing as you went further and further away from the faith, but you simply wanted to do your own thing? Is that what was happening? Uh, yes, doing one's own thing is a misnomer in that I very much wanted to get the approval of everyone about me. And that hunger for approval, it was so acute that uh, even in, in high school, to be acceptable, you were a jock on campus. And um, I wanted to be an English major. The acceptable jocks were not exactly English majors during that time. And so I kept it very, very hush-hush that my great loves were Latin and English, both English grammar as well as English literature. And uh, when I would do real well, I would have a deal with the teachers do not read my papers, do not single me out with the crowd because I'd like to be acceptable. And so I'd say the hunger and thirst the, for the acceptance and the approval of peers was just killing me. Uh, it may revert back to the fact that I was a missionary kid, uh, fresh from the mission field in 1960, not even sure of what section of the bus was safe for me to ride on in those days of, in of the South. prejudice, mm -hmm. racial prejudice, to the kind of clothes that I wore. Uh, a 1930 zoot suit is not exactly acceptable clothing for, uh, for a youth function in you those days. You tell me you actually wore a zoot suit? Well, yes, I did. I graduated from eighth grade in a zoot suit. <laughs> Someone <laughs> sent that in a missionary barrel of clothing to uh, to Africa, and I guess figuring an African would wear it, and I didn't have a coat and tie, and so that's what I wore. At that time, I thought it was pretty cool. But you did graduate in uh, Zaire from the eighth grade, right? right? So you started in high school in the United States in the ninth grade or right. in the tenth grade? Ninth grade. Ninth grade. Walt, you obviously were a keen observer of 
the kind of Christianity that your parents had and the way you've described your father's affection for your mother, that made a difference not only to you but to your peers. We've got a lot of parents that would be listening to these programs who are almost in despair over some of their teenage kids. What would you say to them? Well, the first thing, of course, is that my parents were strong believers in the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. It was the covenant. God doesn't uh, mince words when he says that he has become our God and we are his people. He, he, he loves the plural. And how that applies so crucially in my life is my parents took the promise of, uh, in Acts 2, 38, 39, that the promise of salvation is to you and your children. They took this to mean everything for them as they learned to pray for me, as they learned to remind God, you've made a promise with us to raise our children up in faith, in your faithfulness, not our own, in your faithfulness and not in fear. Because what bewilders us parents is all the things that come up in our minds, what our kids can fall into, what our kids get mixed up into, the tremendous temptations, the great powers and principalities that would love to do a number on our precious kids. And that faith coupled with prevailing prayer is certainly what my parents preoccupied themselves with rather than just uh, worry themselves to death, which they could have. Thank you so much. You've been listening to my son-in-law, Walt Shepard. Valerie is here also in the studio, and tomorrow we're going to hear some more from one or both of them. That was the first in our series, A Legacy of Love. That was The Need for Approval. Later on, we'll be hearing about angels watching over me as we continue our Legacy of Love series. First, though, let's hear from longtime radio host Bob Lapine as he talks about a special night with Elizabeth and Lars Graham. One of the most uh, delightful evenings of my life happened. It was, it was January. I don't remember what year this was. I was in charge of a gathering of Christian leaders. It was a three-day training retreat, and we had invited Lars and Elizabeth to come and to, uh, to be with us for the retreat and to speak a couple of times. And the first night we were there, we had Lars and Elizabeth come and join us on the platform, and we just did a short interview with them. Well, actually, it wound up being about an hour-long interview, asking about how they met, about their courtship, um, and, and that night, the people who were there will never forget it. It was uh, fun and warm and funny. Elizabeth would, would tell a story, and Lars would, uh, would pause and say, well, I, I don't quite remember it that way. <laughs> and then he would share it from his perspective, and Elizabeth would, uh, would look at him with with this look that was kind of a cross between you be careful with what you're about to say and yet you could see there was a twinkle in her eye and uh, there was a smile on her lips as she heard Lars sharing his telling of that story what I remember was her sharing about how Lars proposed and how he uh, had come to her in the kitchen she thought it was ridiculous that that he would want to marry her. Of course, by this point, 
she had lost two husbands. She, she'd been married twice. And so I think she had thought that she would not marry again, but Lars came to her and he, uh, he proposed and she, she pushed back and said, she didn't think that was a great idea and couldn't imagine that. And then he said to her, I, I just want to be able to take care of you. And there was a, a sweetness and a tenderness in that moment where you could see how Elizabeth wanted someone who would be a companion, but who would also be an ally, someone who would care for her. It, it was a great evening and uh, full of, of rich memories. Longtime radio host Bob Lapine. Thank you, Bob. Well, later on, we'll be hearing from Rachel Johnson, who works with our social media here at the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation. She'll talk about the audience that's reached through the efforts of the foundation. First, though, angels watching over me. Do you think you have guardian angels? This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliott, talking today with my son-in-law, Walt Shepard, and my daughter, Valerie. Welcome, Val. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And welcome, Walt. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Val, maybe you have a few little things to say about some of the things that your husband told us yesterday. Well, we were in the midst of talking about his high school years and his uh, terrible desire to please his peers or to be like everyone else, not to be different, because he had grown up on the mission field and come to the States when he was 14 or 15. I had quite a different experience through high school um, because I came to the States when I was eight years old. It was not such a big adjustment for me to fall into the public school system as it was for Walt to as a teenager. But I remember knowing that I was different in high school and yet not seeming to be bothered too much by it. I do remember wanting to wear the short skirts that were popular in 69, 70, 71 and arguing with you about that, thinking, saying, I'll never wear skirts below my knees, and that's exactly what I have on today. But I don't remember much more than that uh, as far as wanting to be like the crowd. I knew that I wanted to follow Christ, too, and a major commitment, I think, was made for me between my freshman and sophomore year in high school, that knowing that Jesus had to be my own Lord and Master and that I was, I needed to be committed to following Him, when Walt came to the States, he was 15, and you were saying that your parents' affection meant a great deal to you, but the pull of the crowd seemed to mean more. And we were saying, how do we encourage parents today who have children who are more enamored with following the crowd than they are with following Christ? And that is the covenant. We know that we have a covenant-keeping God. We know that we can pray in faith that God will draw our children to himself. I remember so well when we first were starting to raise our children, when we had children maybe four and two and a baby, that you said to me, Val, we, we will raise our children in faith that they will not have these rebellious teenage years that everybody expects. We will not raise them in fear that that's going to happen. And I remember th that making a big impression on me as we started to raise them and, and trusting that God was going to help us to raise them up. How can you say that as you look back on your own teenage years, you see how you want to raise your own children 
because of the way you went? What What is it that affects how you talk to your children now as teenagers? We have three teenagers. We have a almost 18-year-old boy and a 15-year-old girl, and Christiana is 13. Well, Val, we, we must say here that the uh, strength to our marriage is that you didn't have that wretched life that I had and that we saw God faithful in your life uh, without having to run to the far country like I mm-hmm. did. And I mm-hmm. praise God for that because I'm not going to live in this fear, as you said so well. I'm not going to live in the fear that my kids have to go Dad's way. But I'm not going to spend much time on my past. I'm not going to spend really any time trying to... Uh, let them in on all the on all the sort of stuff. I learned a lesson with my sister when she was going off to a far country. I saw that look in her eyes. I recognized it. And when I tried to talk to her one night, particularly one rather dramatic evening, and I said to her, I said, listen, don't make the mistakes I made. And she said to me in anger, she said, don't preach to me and expect me to learn from your mistakes. Mm-hmm. Whereas my youngest uh, in the family growing up, the younger brother, I asked him, I said, now what kept you out of going the way your older brother did? What, uh, what kept you from harm? And he looked at me and he said, Walter, I was watching you the whole time and I did not want to relive that horrible experience for myself. Mm-hmm. So each kid is different mm-hmm. and yet, um, the encouragement as we as we raise our children is in that same God, in the same Father who loves our children more than we do. And so we, instead of worrying, we're going to remind him and remind ourselves that these are his children, they're not ours. I think this is the, this is the difference between making an idolatry out of our children. For a lot of parents, this is I think this is what's behind this strange empty nest syndrome that I hear people talking about. Was there a crisis experience that really turned your life around? Yes. Uh, I think I think it's important to, to make just that little distinction that it was really is really the God of my parents that I was at issue with, not not necessarily uh, the whole Christian. Uh, family uh, basis from which I was leaving home. At one point, I became so, so desperate in this search for getting my life in my own hands. This is this is rather pitiful, but I felt like I was losing my grip on my life, and I was uh, at a party and going on in the back of my mind were several things. One of them was trying to actually take the the steps toward reconciling with a lady that I thought I loved at the time and uh, just realizing my life was a mess. And I was out at the lake, Lake Pontchartrain in, in New Orleans at the time and I just thought, let's let's just get in the car and we'll go see if, if I can be reconciled to this other person. And I was in my car going east on I-10 when I said to myself, what are you doing? You're not going to straighten up. You're not going to change your ways. And uh, if you do get reconciled to this other person, you're going to only drag this other person through your mess. So why don't you just end it now? And that's when I looked up ahead, saw the taillights of what looked like an abandoned vehicle. 
and uh, I pushed the accelerator as far as it would go and did as much speed as I could to hit this parked car and hoped to end my life. What I didn't know was there were two people that were in the car who had just left the car to change places. Had they been in the car when my car hit, they would have been destroyed. And the car made quite a crash. There were a few people around at that time of day. It was 3.42 a.m. The highway was deserted. There was a manager at the Holiday Inn just across the highway who heard the crash, went out the door, went back, and called for Slidell Memorial Hospital to come send an ambulance. And uh, I was in this mess of a fire, a huge blaze. I had gone through my windshield, landed up in my engine of this little sports car, and was lying there helplessly. I, I couldn't get myself out. And uh, two people appeared mysteriously at that time and pulled me out of the fire. They walked right into the blaze, pulled me out of the fire, and held me there while the ambulance came and placed me inside the ambulance, and then they disappeared. I was protected miraculously at that time, obviously. Who do you think they were? Well, uh, the highway patrolmen were were really puzzled about this. They'd never seen anything like it. And after talking to my father, my father said to me weeks later, he said, son, they had to be angels. They couldn't have been just mere men. They appeared from nowhere and, and went nowhere. Yeah, apparently. they vanished. Uh, the highway patrolmen were trying to conduct a, the interview so that they could uh, create a, a report of the scene. I think you told me that... the patrolman said that there wasn't any way that anybody could have gotten anywhere near the blaze, right? The blaze was uh, about 50 feet high in the air, and the area around was so hot nobody could come near the vehicles while they were burning. And these guys just walked in there like it was was a picnic. They walked in there, pulled me out, and held me. And all I had to show for it, as far as the fire was concerned, was a little bit of singed hair on on the top of my head. You were not burned beyond recognition? No, I wasn't burned hardly at all. In fact, all my injuries were lacerations. And the other amazing thing is that when you woke up in the hospital and you realized that you hadn't killed yourself, the nurse said to you, you ought to be thanking God that you're still alive, and you said... Yeah, I said, that's the last thing I want to do. And uh, the doctor convinced me I needed to give him my parents' phone number. I said angrily, hey, I'm not a juvenile. Just get me cleaned up and I'll see my parents. And he said, son, you're not going to see your parents pass this morning. So you owe it to them to let them see you one more time. I fell unconscious and looked up again and there was my father standing there. And I couldn't look him in the eye. I was so ashamed. But it's during the recovery of this that I found myself surrendering to Christ. Talk about a changed life. Walt Shepard is the pastor of the Aliso Creek Presbyterian Church in... Aliso Viejo. Aliso Viejo. Thank you, Val. And the father of eight children. And I am the very blessed mother-in-law of this man. I was going to say son-in-law of Elizabeth Elliot. (laughs) Well, thank you ever so much, Val and Walt. Do you have a closing word you'd like to say, Val? Well, of course, I can say thank the Lord that the Lord saved Walt from from this death, and we are blessed. 
we feel like our cup is running over, and we know that God had a purpose for him in saving him that, at that point of his life. On your birthday, your 40th birthday, which wasn't very long ago, when I talked to you on the phone, you told me about two happy surprise parties that you'd gotten and some gifts that you got, but you also said, Mama, I'm so blessed. I am so blessed, not just because of the parties and the gifts, not primarily, but because of all God's mercies. So I am blessed in having a daughter and a son-in-law like these two people, and we're going to be talking to them again. Thank you, Walt and Val. A Legacy of Love, Part 2, Angels Watching Over Me. We have an eight-part series that we've just begun, so be sure to stay tuned for the next uh, few programs to hear the rest of this series. Right now, Rachel Johnson, who works with the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, especially in the social media, publishing, and devotional areas, talks about the audience that Elizabeth is able to reach even today. Yeah, I think it's a real mixed bag. We get emails from women who who say, I remember when my mom or my grandmother used to listen to Gateway to Joy whenever I was a child. And it's so neat to now be able to listen to those again in a more modern way as a, in a podcast form. Um, so we do have a very young audience. Um, and some of them are saying, I've never heard of Elizabeth before. You know, I'm just now discovering and finding out who she was and um, about her testimony and um, her life as a missionary and losing her husband and then all the books that she wrote. So, so there are women that are really just discovering her for the first time as well. Rachel Johnson. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for letting us come into your home, your office, maybe along with you as you took that walk, wherever we found you today. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to visit us at elizabethelliot.org. elizabethelliot.org. One reviewer said, I love Elizabeth. She speaks to my heart as a dear, wise friend. She is the kind of woman I wish I had known personally in my walk with Jesus over 30 years. But our dear Lord and Savior Jesus is using all her books and recorded messages here now, even though she is home with Jesus. Her amazing race completed by His amazing grace. Well, until next time, may God remind you daily that you're loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms 